Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to event 47, our World Poetry Series. This is, for us, very exciting. It's the first time we uh, went for a Kickstarter campaign to bring in our Latin American poets, and it was a highly successful campaign, so we're really thankful, and we're really excited to have uh, these poets who've come all the way from Argentina and Mexico to Ledbury to read to you. Uh, I have to thank the Arts Council, without whom there would be no festival. And I'd like to thank uh, everybody who made a contribution to the Kickstarter campaign, all the individuals, uh, but especially Anthony Garner, Neil Astley, uh, as well as the uh, particular sponsor, Mr. Juan Martinez. There will be book signing at the end, and let me also say that because they've come from so far away, and the format of this morning is going to be 20 minutes, roughly, of conversation and a bit of context for you, 20 minutes of uh, Laura's poetry and 20 minutes of Pedro's poetry. Uh, Laura um, lives in Buenos Aires. Her book of poetry include El Pasillo del Tren, uh, Los Cosacos, Las Últimas Mudanzas, and, and many others. Um, and um, she has... Her work has also been included in the anthologies uh, Noche con Posibilidades, Por qué insistimos con los viajes, and Jueves, Noche. She studied literature at the University of Buenos Aires. She conducts poetry and translation workshops and works as a translator for various editorials. And she has translated work by Leonard Cohen, David Markson, Anne Tyler, James Schuler, and others into Spanish. And she's also written children's books, uh, most recently, Eso no se hace. <laughs> Pablo has published uh, five collections of poems. He has co-edited and co-translated the groundbreaking anthology of uh, La Generación del Cordero, The Lamb Generation, which brought together um, 30 contemporary British poets. This was back in 2000. Uh, his libretto for the opera, Marimbas del Exil, El Norte en Veracruz, was first staged in Besançon in France in January 2000, and then traveled to Paris and Mexico. He has also translated Shakespeare's King John into Spanish, and many of his poems have been translated into English and have been published widely in the UK and abroad. He teaches in the Faculty of Philosophy and Letters at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Uh, he's also in charge of uh, the Literary Translation Center in Banff in Canada. Anne, who's seated next to Pedro, to Pedro's left, is the co-founder and former artistic director of Stanza, which a lot of you I know are familiar with, Scotland's Poetry Festival. She now serves on the board of trustees as their honorary president, and her poetry has been widely uh, anthologized and set to music, and she has ins uh, inspired painters, photographers, textile artists, and her work has been translated into many other languages. Um, her third full collection, by the way, is coming out shortly in September. It's been published by ARC. It's called Not on the Side of the Gods. Uh, she has indeed uh, translated Pedro's poetry, which is why she's here today, to read his uh, poems in English. So I'd like to welcome you uh, and uh, them uh, and our artistic director, Chloe Garner, who's going to be asking the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. I'm going to begin by um, 
asking you about the importance of place in your poetry. So, uh, Pedro, would you like to start? And yes, I'm, well, I would say that place is, uh, is it's, it's, it's sometimes something fixed and something shifting. So I've, I've written several poems. I've, I lived for several years here in, in, in Britain and in some other places. And, and for me, a place is a, it's a site that, it's, uh, that kind of originates a poem. Mm. No? And, and um, it's a way of coming back to, to that experience no? without, without the idea of a place, without the sense of a place. I would say that a poem wouldn't just to, uh, to appear. Mm. No. Mm. Yes, if it's the same, exactly the same thing for me. It's place is one of the most important things for me. Not only the place where I'm at, but the rest of the places where I'm at, not at. Like I'm missing all the places even the ones I've never been to. <laughs> it's like a constant longing. And, uh, well, actually, the book where I'm read from today, it's called Places Where, I, where One Is Not. <laughs> and uh, all the places that I've known, it's like they continue to be on my mind. And also the place where I live, which is from where I take all my poems. So it's one of the most important things for me to write. Oh, okay. And, um, and what about um, sort of memories of uh, childhood <laughs> places? Have they been at all formative, your uh, sort of experiences as children and growing up? Have they been...? Yes, I think they are. They're always with me. I don't know if I write explicitly about mm. it. I usually they get transformed into something else. I do write a lot about my children's infancy. I mean, mm. because it's ha it was happening short ago and it's happening now in a way that, I mean, it's there, but maybe, yes, not in the poems. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, for me, it's a, there are some poems that come from my childhood and, and uh, uh, and as, a, as an experience that I, I, I don't write poems that, like, that, that I'm saying I'm going to, to write about this thing, no? but, mm -hmm. but then suddenly I am in, into, into a place in which I, I touch some experience that might come from my childhood and, and, um, and come to the poem. I, um, for example, I, I, I had a sister who uh, died a few years ago, um, quite young. She was 48, and then, then I wrote a poem about us being like uh, bueyes. ¿Cómo se dice bueyes? Uh, cattle. Cattle, but, but not, oxen. 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 Like oxen. It, it was uh, because as a children, as children, we spent time in the countryside, and there were oxen working in the fields. So the poem is about two oxen, but going into the sea. So it's moving from the original experience to the sad experience of, of uh, having she died and, uh, and to be with her in that movement 
together from the, when we were children until the end. And also I write poems about my children. I have a poem about, well, they are not so young now, but they were. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, losing a, 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 a tooth, mm. and it, I compared the tooth with a marabedi, which is a, an ancient uh, Arab word for a, for a coin you know, in, in, in Spain. And, and about turtles, there was a, a, once we were in, the, in Mexico in the, by the sea, seeing the, the little turtles going from the from from their needles nest to the to the sea, and one of my my, my children he was five years old or less, no three years old, and he started crying because where is her mother. <laughs> no, and so th I wrote this poem in which it's there going to the sea, but there are also the turtles going to the sea. So I tend to mix experiences. That's so strange because I wrote almost the same poem. Yeah. <laughs> I was well, planning to read it tonight at the open oh. mic. Yeah. That's and um, I'm curious, uh, because uh, readers often ask about the sort of the I in poetry and um, the idea of kind of truth in poetry. And it's also interesting thinking about sort of otherness in poetry, that it's a place where you can explore other personas or other parts of yourself, maybe, or, or dig out those parts. And then, of course, with the idea of foreignness and translation, that's a kind of otherness that we're encountering. So... Um, could either of you say, would you like to say something about that, about how you work with the other inside yourself or look for hidden parts of yourselves in poems? I, I, I can say something, because <laughs> that, the last poem I, I, I wrote, I, I sent it to you, it's called Lamprey. It's called, actually, I would say in English, Lamprey as a mean dish. No? And it's, a, it's a, it, I don't write normally poems that are kind of... A, Figurative, no. But this, this is this work like that, <laughs> and and it's it's. Uh, I've never have. Have you ever? Any of you have tasted a lamprey? No. no? Well, I I, I, I haven't either. <laughs> but but it's. I, I'm reading a lot about biology, so so that I don't know. It was so disgusting. This this <laughs> animal, and and I wrote about it, and it's a funny and disgusting poem. No, you, you read it. And so yes, of course, and it has to do with, with everything, with with, with uh, eating, with with what it is, the way he uh, it eats, uh, because it, it it doesn't have a, a jaws. It's a very ancient fish, so it has a, a kind of round series of teeth that just got into an. It can eat a, a, a little horse, for example. Wow. No, and. So, so do, it was, I, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm in, 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 the, the origin of experience, it can be in, in whatever, it can be something happy, it can be something not so happy, and I don't know, I just got into that poem like that. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yes, um, I think for me, otherness is almost always positive, <laughs> not negative at least when I write, because mm -hmm. it's something I always seeking. It makes me see myself from another, from a different point of view, mm -hmm. and 
it's very exciting for me to be in well other places mm. surrounded by different languages even when I can't understand them and also the otherness of other people it's, it's very attractive for me I'm constantly picking up other people's conversations and how they look and how they move mm. uh, I guess in backward I mean in the bottom it's it's like I'm looking for myself in everything it's it's kind of selfish feeling <laughs> but it's it's mm. when I confronted to otherness it was, it's when I feel more alive mm. I would say mm. yeah that's interesting and then um, to think a bit about translation so um, uh, Anna, you said that when you translate, you are really aware of not using the poem as a jumping-off place for your own poem. So could you say a bit about that? Yes, that, that's something I feel quite strongly about. That I, I, I feel sad that some poets kind of use their position as a translator to create out of someone else's poem something completely different. When if it, you know, if they're if they're the job they've been given is to translate that poem. I think it's, I feel honor bound to stay as close as I can. And it, for me, it, it always involves a really, really close listening to the music of the poem. Um, you know, um, there was a, a, a very famous um, accompanist, um, Gerald Moore, and he wrote a biography. He used to accompany really, really famous solo musicians, you know, violinists <coughs> like Yehudi Menuhin or uh, Victoria de los Angeles, you know, the Catalan uh, a soprano. And his biography was called Am I Too Loud? <laughs> <laughs> and I, for, that's a question I think translators need to ask themselves um, because it, it's all part of this otherness, getting close to another voice and listening as just as hard as you can to see you know and almost imagining that you are that person um and so yes i i i do think it's it's really important to stay as close as possible to the poem and i think that the the the, the, the so the weird thing about translating a poem is that then you realize that the poem is yours. I mean, you become the other and, uh, while translating it, but the other is not the poet. The other is the other that, that is, is appearing in the poem. Mm. No, it's an, I think that when you write, coming back to what you said, Laura, uh, when you write, you are moving towards anotherness. And when you are translating, you are getting that otherness and moving it to a, another place. So, so the, the poem, even in the original, doesn't belong to who wrote it. And the poem in translation doesn't belong to you, and it does. For example, when, when Anna uh, reads a poem of mine, I, I, I'm feeling that it's her own poem. But if I'm reading it in English, I have the feeling, sorry, Anna, that I wrote that, <laughs> and it's not true. It was Anna who did it. No. I don't mind. <laughs> but that's because she's a very good translator. Yes, it's amazing translator. Because it doesn't always happen when someone translates 
one's poems. Sometimes you say, I didn't read this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yes, I agree with Anna and with Pedro. Uh, just maybe I can add that sometimes the, the poem I, I'm translating gives myself the possibility to, afterwards to write my own poem based, mm -hmm. I mean, like sometimes I take that voice for my own things mm -hmm. for a while when I'm, or especially when I'm translating a novel, for instance, because I have, I am three, four months with the same author and afterwards it's like I'm writing like him or her is, <laughs> that's what happens. Yeah. Well, that's really lovely to hear you chat. And now we'll move into the readings. So okay. I'll um, let you do that. Um, they told me to stand up, so I will. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so I'll be reading mixed points from long ago and from not so long ago. That's well. It's not important for you because you don't know me, so... <laughs> uh, so I'll read in Spanish and then um, Peter will read in, in English. I'm sorry, but I will have to stand like... Is that okay by... Because the light comes from here. ¿Por qué las mujeres nos quemamos con el horno? La marquita roja la tenemos todas. Acá en la mano izquierda, con la que escribo, está también mi quemadura de horno. Si la miro muy fijo, sobre el radio, se me despliega en tres. Se me tridimensiona la muñeca y entrecerrando los ojos pueden verse la muñeca de mi madre, la de mi abuela y en un tirón hacia adelante la de mi hija, picada de mosquitos, pulida y ya dispuesta a la marca de la rejilla ardiente. Why women get burnt by the oven. We all have that little red mark somewhere. On my left hand, the one I write with, there's my own oven burn. If I stare at it a while, it fans out into a triad over the radius. My wrist becomes three-dimensional, and if I squint hard enough, I can see my mother's wrist, my grandmother's, and with one twist forward, my daughter's too, covered with mosquito bites and smooth, but already resigned to the mark of the heated grill. Fábula del Gran Danés. Yo dije por decir, me gustaría tener un Gran Danés, porque en la calle qué regios quedaríamos. Él a mi lado, un novio principesco, y yo despreocupada conversándole. Y se me respondió, qué estupidez, qué proyecto imposible. ¿Quién puede mantener un gran danés? Es grande, caro, tonto, bla, bla, bla. Alguien que así se expresa, pensé yo, no te conviene. No sabe interpretar tus devaneos. Baja el puño sobre la fantasía salvadora. Alejate de él. Y me alejé. The fable of the great Dane. I said... It, just to say it, I'd like to have a Great Dane. We would be so regal, going down the street, he at my side, my princely companion, I prattling to him without a care. And the response, what a stupid thing to say, an impossible project. Who can take care of a Great Dane? It would be too big, expensive, dumb, blah, blah, blah. 
Someone who talks like that, I thought, is not good for you. He can't make sense of your musings, brings his fist down on your essential fantasies. Go away from him. And I did. ¿Por qué, si me postran mil veces, me levanto? Los patios internos, los baños y cocinas con pileta cuadrada, los ambientes semicirculares con ventanal corrido, un aro de básquet en la calle para que tire cualquiera, el café exacto que todo lo arrasa y todo lo eleva durante media hora, el cielo cuando se decolora hasta quedar en blanco, la pronunciación de un idioma extranjero rodeándome como una atmósfera cargada de sentidos ocultos, las charlas con mi hija en el balcón, las charlas con mi hija en un colchón atravesado en el living sin sábanas, la mano de mi hijo adolescente en mi mano cuando nadie lo ve, trazando la misma caricia que en la infancia, la memoria de todas las caricias que dejaron su dibujo indeleble. Why, if prostrated a thousand times, I will rise? The indoor patios, the bathrooms and kitchens with square-shaped sinks, the semicircular rooms with rows of windows, a basketball net raised in the street so anyone can shoot hoops, that exact coffee that smooths everything and heightens everything for half an hour, the sky when its color fades to white, the pronunciation of a foreign language surrounding me like an atmosphere charged with hidden meanings, the talks with my daughter on the balcony, the talks with my daughter on a mattress, bisecting the living room without sheets, the hand of my adolescent son in my hand when no one can see him, tracing the same caress he traced in infancy, the memory of every caress that left its indelible mark. A un Dios desconocido. No sé si pasó el tiempo suficiente, pero creo que ya puedo idealizar ese concierto de órgano en la iglesia que nos mantuvo a los dos en silencio, descansando del calor y de la lluvia. ¿Vos qué pensabas? ¿Cerraste como yo los ojos? ¿Tenías como yo, vibrante, en la lengua el gusto del café? Yo saqué los pies de las sandalias y los apoyé en un almohadón fresco, forrado de cuerina. A vos se te cayó una moneda liviana. Hizo un minúsculo tintín y sonreímos. El órgano nos encantó como a serpientes y por un rato pareció desenvolver toda una serie de impresiones religiosas en el sentido de algo que podamos llamar religión. Algo que englobe el amor y la bondad y conduzca directamente a la experiencia, ese colchón concreto que nos refugia y nos sacude. To a God unknown. I don't know whether enough time has passed, but I feel I've already managed to idealize that organ recital at the church that kept us both in silence as we rested from the heat and the rain. I wonder what you were thinking. Did you close your eyes as I did? Was the taste of coffee still lingering on your tongue? I slipped my feet out of my sandals and placed them on a cool four leather cushion. A small coin fell out of your pocket. It landed with a slight clink and we laughed. The organ charmed us as if we were snakes and for a while the whole series of religious impressions 
seem to unfold around us insofar as we can call it religion. Something embracing goodness and love leading directly to experience, a concrete bedding that shelters and shakes us. This, this last poem is dedicated to Juan, who is sitting there. Otra ciudad. Cuando levanto la vista, veo nieve. Nieve refulgiendo desde el televisor. Como siempre, titilan sobre el mapa los lugares donde una no está. Seguro extrañaría el mercado de flores y despertar en este piso octavo que se abre desafiando al viento. La verdad es que hubo un solo día de nieve y que hay una posible segunda versión para las cosas conocidas. Las valijas están hechas desde siempre y además están sobre el sofá en posición de espera. Ese momento dura, se sostiene, es una manera de estar, estar a punto de ser abandonada. El pozo negro de las valijas hechas, reverso del desembarco. El deseo humano por lo incompleto, que se refleja, dicen, en la predilección por lo pequeño, lo breve, el fragmento. Another city. When I raise my eyes, I see snow, snow gleaming from the television. As always, places where one is not shimmer on the map. Certainly, I'd miss the flower market and waking in this eighth floor flat, which opens out in defiance of the wind. The truth is there was just one day of snow, and there is a second possible version of things known to us. Suitcases have been packed forever and ready on the sofa, waiting to be off. That moment lasts, is sustained, It's a way of being, to be at the point of being abandoned, the black pit of packed bags, the reverse of disembarking, the human desire for the incomplete reflected, it is said, in a preference for small things, brevity, fragments. ¿Por qué no tiene que llover los domingos a la noche? Truena y mis hijos están en su otra casa. Primero un trueno lejos, después uno más cerca, un trueno finalmente atronador que retumba en cada cuarto vacío y en este único cuarto iluminado donde trabajo a medianoche. Truena y no tengo a quien calmar lo que por un segundo se parece a no tener quien me calme, pero no. Una madre se recompone pronto, aunque los hijos estén en su otra casa. Why it shouldn't rain on Sunday nights. Thunder and my children in their other home. First a far off rumble, then closer, and finally a truly thunderous one, rippling through all the empty rooms, and this one with the light on, where I'm working at midnight. Thunder and no one for me to soothe, which for an instant seems like no one to soothe me. But no, a mother recovers quickly, even if her children are in their other home. Okay, and this is the last one, it's very short, and it's for Juan too, <laughs> and it's called Jet Lag. ¿Viste las papas rojas que compramos juntos? Recién hoy las guiso, y vos en otro continente. Jet Lag. You know those red potatoes we bought together? Today they're going in my soup. 
and you are on another continent. Okay, thank you very much. I just wanted to thank to the different people who translated my poems into English, who are um, Gregory Rax, um, Shira Rubenstein, Mark Doe, uh, Richard Gwynne, who's from Wales, and also Andrew Graham Yule, who passed away last week in London. And so anyway, here. Thank you. So we're going to read. Uh, we're going to read. I, I'll read first in Spanish. And um, which page is it? And then Anna is going to read in English. Uh, and it's those poem from from this book, which is called Pitlands. Uh, Anna can explain why she chose that title because it was her own choice. Golondrinas, enganchadas al cable como pinzas de ropa, gaviotas de madera diminutas, ágiles y minúsculas contra la brutalidad del azul, fijas al mediodía cayendo una tras otra, moviendo ropas, brazos, sonrisas, el pecho blanco, la capucha negra, las alas afiladas y en lista, mínima agitación, hasta que vuelan todas excepto una, que se plantó un momento y arañó el regreso como una ligerísima despedida, axila de golpe la mañana. Quedan los cables, el cielo en abandono intenso, como una boda de domingo de pueblo. Después, nada. Um, we called it Peatlands because, um, well, there's a whole sequence of poems in the book from one of Pedro's books, which is um, called Turba, which means peat. And it, it occurred to me and to the ARC um, editors that it was a wonderful image for poetry as a, a way of preserving and transforming experience, which is what peat does, you know, because it, it's sphagnum moss, transformed in, into peat and it, and it becomes a something that warms you you can burn it and it, and it warms you so it seemed and then Pedro said and he liked the idea of it being called peat which is like Peter Pedro <laughs> so, swallows pinned to the wire like clothes pegs diminutive seagulls made of wood lithe and tiny in the brutal force of the blue, motionless at noon, dropping one after another, setting in motion clothes, arms, smiles, with white breasts and black caps, streamlined wings, and in single file, with minimal fuss, until all have flown but one, that perched for a moment and clung to its return as though to sketch the lightest of goodbyes, with morning suddenly an armpit. The wires remain, 
The sky never so empty, like a village wedding on a Sunday, then nothing. Well, the next poem is about um, about children getting out from school when in, 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 when they are teenagers and and these kind of things that make them gather together and at the same time that they want to be individuals. And I was I've been recently writing an essay about a, a friend of mine, a painter who died, and I, whom I knew since high school, before high school. So, so and I was remembering him. We getting out of the school and meeting in the in the in a road and having an ice cream or something, whatever before getting everybody to, to, to their houses. And I, 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 I unconsciously I used a line from this poem. And this poem was written in it's 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 called uh, Escolares in Via Augusta, which is a road in Barcelona, talking about uh, places. Como hojas de viento sorprendidas en ráfaga. Se desprenden del grupo compacto, un niño, dos, cada vez más. Levantan en vuelo para encrespar la calle, soplados hacia sí, impelidos a unirse. Deshaciendo el grupo en el que estaban, buscándolo de nuevo, conformándose. Un imán los aleja y los reúne. Los dispersa primero hacia la calle los vuelve a congregar. Es muy extraña esa manera de llenarse, hacerse ser, como si no supieran quiénes son sin seguimiento. Se buscan, se tocan, se apelmazan. Nada se da de golpe sino en un desafío que los impide de uno en uno. Hay dos o tres que ya han cruzado dos o tres más que comienzan a desprenderse, hasta que, como si se expandiera el motivo, el bucle se despega, vuela, se asimila, cruza la calle en masa, queda un aliento, una suavidad que mece, que acompaña a los rezagados, que los hace ver que allá no están, que ya no están, que el grupo está del otro lado, todo con una naturalidad de viento amable, sin violencia, como en ciclo, masa compacta nuevamente, al fin, tras movimiento, apaciguados. And just I want to add that this poem well, is uh, uh, Julian, Anna's husband, who wanted me to read it, so I, and I thank him for that. School children on Via Augusta. Like leaves of wind surprised in a sudden gust, they peel away from the dense huddle. One child, two, then several, more. They take flight and ruffle up the street, blown towards each other, impelled into merging, unraveling the group they were in, seeking it out again, finding their place. A magnet drives them apart and tugs them back. It scatters them first towards the street, then brings them together once more. It's very strange the way they fill out, make themselves be, as though they don't know who they are unless pursued. They chase each other, touching, colliding. 
There's no giving way except in a challenge that blocks them one by one. There are two or three who've already crossed over, two or three more who are starting to break away, until, as if the motive were spreading, the curl escapes, flies free, tucks itself in, and they cross the street en masse. A breath of air lingers, a gentleness that rocks, that wraps itself round the stragglers, making them see that they're not there, they're not there yet, that the group is on the other side, all as natural as a kindly wind, without violence, like a pattern, a compact group once more, finally, after motion, calm and still. Lustral. La cuchilla de agua de la luna en esta noche inmerecidamente. Pega el silencio entre las manchas de los árboles, capas oscuras, vetas de lava iluminadas. Adentro, en una esquina, un manojo podrido de magnolias, blancas, torcidas. Adentro el baño lustral, afuera cables y ruidos rotos y los pájaros, el columpio lunar, la rajadura de la luna, la uña de plata. Salgo por esta noche hasta tu cuerpo, levanto el cáliz de tu carne, caigo sobre tu espalda manantial, abro tus piernas y las alas mojadas, la lengua cierta, el calamar, el agua vaginal. Llevo las manos por tu espalda azul, la grupa altiva, grabo el recorrido de tu cuerpo, el beso de la nuca, alzo la menta amor de tus caderas, ando a cuatro patas por tu cuerpo, luna, te cabalgo, luna, te cabalgo, mojada mantarraya, manto de Dios, montuna, Yo te monto. Lustral. The moon's watery knife in this night, undeservedly. It strikes silence between the patches of the trees, dark cloaks, veins of lit lava. Within, in one corner, a withered clump of white, twisted magnolias. Within, this outpouring of light, Outside, cables and fractured sounds and the birds. The moon's swing, sliver of moon, fingernail of silver. I go out into this night to your body. I raise the chalice of your flesh. I fall on your welling shoulder. I open your legs and the wet wings, the sure tongue, the squid, the vaginal water. I reach my hands to your blue shoulder, the haughty rump. I engrave the journey over your body, the kiss on the nape of your neck. I lift the beloved mint of your thighs. I crawl on all fours across your body, moon. I ride you, moon. I ride you, damp manta ray, mantle of God and mountainous, I mount you. 
Well, the next poem, uh, um, Anna translates from Catalan also, and I lived in, in Barcelona, and it's, uh, the, you know, in Barcelona there are these, in the Nacimientos, how do you say Belen's in English? Nacimientos. Um, uh, 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 nativities. Uh, yeah, nativities. Christmas. Christmas. They have this little figure that is called Caganier, which can be translated the, the um, pool boy. The, the pool boy. Yeah. Pool boy. Pool boy. Yeah. <laughs> no. So the poem is called El arte de fecar. Cagar es un placer. Desgañitarse por el caño febril y terminar sin prisa alguna que nos lleve a odiar. Cagar es como el arte de escribir. Hay que pensarlo. Darle el tiempo justo para que todo salga bien robusto. Dicen los eruditos que lo saben, que nadie puede cometer suicidio después de ese preciso infanticidio. Y que limpia de cuajo toda culpa. Y que deja el espíritu en muy alta esfera de perdón, limpio de falta. También es cierto, habrá que concederlo, que como hay seres para cielo, y cloaca, existen modos miles de hacer caca. Desde la huida desapavorida de la angustia inminente del diarreico o el caprino cagar del fariseico, hasta el atoro de quien no quisiera deshacerse de nada y todo estriñe, porque piensa que el mundo lo constriñe. La perfección en el cagar reside si residir se puede en ese gesto que es más etéreo cuando más es nuestro, en llegar preparado y salir justo, casi como un self-service del desecho. Un, dos, tres, otro esfuerzo ya es un hecho. Porque quedar a medias es horrible. El cuerpo lo resiente y se te enchina, tiembla, se raja, escalofría, rechina y en el alma del y el cuerpo del causante y en el cuerpo y el alma del delito es muy mala señal hacer poquito. This little figure is called Caganier, ah, which is the okay. poor boy and, and the Catalans the, the Catalans are very they are very much into into this subject. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The eliminating art. Chitting is a pleasure to bawl along the feverish pipe and then abate without the haste that might lead us to hatred. Shitting is like the art of writing. You have to give it thought and just so long for everything to come out good and strong. Sages declare, and they should know, that no one ever thinks of suicide on the heels of that precise infanticide. And that it scours and rids you of all blame and leaves the spirit in an exalted sphere of clemency and cleansed of fault. It's also true, let's face it, that just as some are bound for heaven, some for the scrap heap, there are a thousand ways of having a crap. 
from diarrhea's imminent distress and fearful voiding of the bowels, or the hypocrite's small goatish crottles, <laughs> to the tight spot of the man who cannot bear to part with anything, so holds it in because he feels life has a hold of him. Perfection, when it comes to shitting, dwells if dwell it can in such a function that is more ethereal, the more noisome it is. In coming prepared and leaving when you should, as though at a self-service, but of waste. One, two, three, another effort, finished. For getting stuck halfway is horrible. <laughs> the body resents it, coming out in goose flesh, trembles, falters, shivers, makes you gnash your teeth, and in the body and soul of the offender, and in the body and soul of the offence, it's a very bad sign to manage no more than an ounce. It's a translation. The, the translation is it's, it's, it's the poem itself. <laughs> And now it's a, a clean amen. A clean amen, you, yes. You yes. Sorry, yes. And the next poem is not in the, in the, in, in the book. And it's a poem <laughs> that I wrote. We, we did a reading in Norwich. And I went to the... Um, to, it has to do with my sister also. Because uh, the, the one who died, and with a brother of mine, I, it was the first time I was in, 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 in Norwich, and, um, and I spent the day, we, we read in the evening, and the next day I spent the day on my own, and we met afterwards. Or, uh, and um, I was in the cathedral, but now, I mean, it, it's, it's about the ceiling of the cathedral, and, and about, Klinamen means, it's, it's a rhetorical figure, but it's something that is kind of making bolts and, and escaping, you know? And um, and also, I mean, I, I can I cannot think about uh, uh, Notre Dame's cathedral also like like something that no. Clinamen. En el artesonado de la catedral de Norwich, elevándose hasta lo infinito, una curva lleva a otra que lleva a otra en un oleaje ingobernable, voluta por voluta. Y en el cielo del cielo las nubes, querubines y orejas y pies, con los ojos y el cuerpo y los ángeles dando vueltas convulsas. No sé cuándo empezamos a ser parte, ni cuándo la ola girará sin nadie que la siga. Pero ahora vamos, en una punta del ala mi hermano y yo en la otra como gran regocijo, Viento en popa, olfateando, esa playa de hornos y sanguijuelas en que nos bañábamos. Y mi hermana María vuela también allá en lontananza, en la rueda de la fortuna en que viajamos, porque hoy es su cumpleaños. Porque hoy se cumplen en una sola arista todas esas curvas y estrías de la madera, y crecen hacia lo alto por pliegues y pilares, y se alzan en olas dando vueltas, piruetas, disparadas al techo, iluminándonos. 
y el tiempo resta sobre su propio peso, se acomoda en la piedra que lo contiene y todo vuelve a seguir su curso en un lento, iluminado clinamen. Allá arriba, desde ese vértice, disparándose en todas direcciones. Clinamen, in the vaulted roof of Norwich Cathedral, soaring up into the infinite, one curve lifts another that lifts another in an ungovernable surge, volute upon volute. And in the sky of heaven, the clouds, cherubim and ears and feet, with eyes and the body and the angels convulsively revolving. I don't know just when we begin to be part of it, nor whether the surging wave will swerve with no one to follow it. But here we go, my brother at one wingtip and I at the other like a great rejoicing, wind astern, sniffing that beach of leeches and furnaces where we used to swim. And my mother and my sister Maria flies as well, there in the distance, in the wheel of fortune on which we travel, because today is her birthday. Because today they come together in a single aris, all those curves and timber flutings, and they multiply upwards in folds and columns and rise in waves, revolving, pirouetting, shooting up into the roof, shedding light on us. And time remains firm upon its own weight, adapting itself to the stone that holds it, and everything returns to its usual groove in a slow, illumined clinamen shooting away in all directions from that apex high above. Shall we read the, the, the elephant one? Oh, yes, yes. And we are going to finish with a poem that relates to a poem that Karan uh, Doffy read uh, yesterday on, uh, about an elephant. So it's called El Elefante de Arquímedes, and this is the last one. It's a poem that I, I included also in a book of poems for children. I don't know why. Sacude las costras terrosas y gruesas, las ancas enormes, la falda de olanes, levanta las patas temibles y mueve una cola muelle. Arroja su trompa toda una conjura, retumba en el cielo la furia de cirros, y con un berrido desproporcionado se lanza al pantano. Allí, revolcando las aguas grumosas, como si del cielo cayera ese trueno, en la turbia mezcla de lodo y de grasas sumerge su rabia. La ciénaga se abre y acoge su peso, las ondas rodean su mole furiosa y la densa masa que el agua despliega aquieta a la bestia. Archimedes' elephant. It shakes its thick, its thick hide, scabbed and caked with soil, the huge haunches with their skirt of furbelows. It lifts its fearsome feet and swings 
a delicate tail. Its trunk hurls out a real imprecation. Cumulus fury rumbles in the heavens, and with an almighty bellow, it dives into the marsh. There, churning up the clotted waters, as though the thunder might tumble from the sky, in the turbid mix of mud and grease, it drowns its rage. The swamp opens and admits its weight. The waves swirl round its furious bulk, and the dense mass that the water unfolds soothes the creature. Here we go. Thank you. Because we have just a little extra time, a couple of minutes left, um, I just thought that we would uh, have one more poem from Laura. And uh, we're going to do it the other way around. So I'll start off with the English, <laughs> and uh, then you'll hear her in Spanish. It's called Pure Summer. The heat brought permanent buzzing. A murmur of electrified buildings balances immense stillness. Window after window shows someone stretched out reading beside bedside insectivore lamps. A few scenes illuminated by television. Two that offer freshly washed body parts. At midnight, the sky roars like an ocean. Below, the wind drags light objects against hard surfaces, whisks forms meters upward that seconds later land. Lawn chairs on balconies, though folded, fall flat. Someone crosses the patio with a flashlight, wondering how to stop the flooding. Something somewhere flickers in the memory and currents of thought that flowed freely at first afterward fizzle. The skin is moist in a couple of ways. It becomes impossible to tease out what one remembers from what one read, from what one thinks one needs to think about. It becomes clear that there is nothing to understand. Verano puro. El calor trajo un zumbido permanente. Un rumor de edificios electrizados mantiene en equilibrio tanta inmovilidad. Ventana tras ventana, Exhibe una persona tendida leyendo a la luz insectívora de veladores. Unas pocas escenas iluminadas por el televisor, dos que ofrecen partes de cuerpos recién duchados. A medianoche el cielo ronca como un mar. Abajo el viento arrastra cosas ligeras contra superficies duras. Lanza formas varios metros hacia arriba que aterrizan segundos después. Reposeras, en balcones, aún plegadas, caen de panza. Alguien avanza sobre el patio con linterna, pensando cómo prevenir la inundación. Hay un punto, titilando en la memoria, y varias líneas de pensamiento, que primero se desbocan, pero después decaen. La piel está húmeda de múltiples maneras. Se hace imposible desenredar, 
el detalle de la cita de la intención de teoría. Se hace evidente que no hay nada que entender. Gracias.